This is Interviews, a podcast from the National Academy of Sciences that provides first-person accounts of the lives and work of Academy members. In this series of one-on-one conversations, scientists talk about what inspired them to pursue the careers they chose and describe some of the most fascinating aspects of their research. As a young man, neurobiologist John Hildebrand was torn between his love of science and his passion for playing music. So he chose to live a dual life, working as a professional musician by night and leading innovative scientific studies of the insect nervous system by day. Using the moth Manduca sexta as a model, Hildebrand has explored the connection between olfaction, the sense of smell, and behavior. His work has revealed unexpected links between smell perception and brain development, as well as the role of smell in feeding and host selection, an area of research that's critical to human health because it plays a role in vector-borne diseases like malaria. John Hildebrand is a Regents Professor of Neuroscience at the University of Arizona. He was elected to the National Academy of Sciences in 2007. I'm John Hildebrand. I was elected to the Academy in 2007. I am a Regents Professor and Head of the Department of Neuroscience at the University of Arizona in Tucson. I study the olfactory system, how odor information is processed in the brain and affects behavior. And I do it in insects, which probably does make the work a little bit novel and interesting. I grew up in Boston. Uh, I was born in Boston. I grew up there. I lived in New York for quite a while, and I think I have more New York in my accent than than Boston, but there's probably a little bit of both. So I spent a long time in Boston and went to college there before I headed off to New York. And uh, can you describe your neighborhood when you were growing up? Yeah. So... By the time I was born, my folks had moved to a suburb of Boston called Belmont. It's next to Cambridge, and it's a very nice town to grow up in. It had very good public schools. It's a bedroom town for MIT and Harvard, so there are lots of interesting people living there. I think that's why the schools were good. And uh, it was a peaceful place. Uh, my family wasn't wealthy, but we were comfortable. and. And I would say it was really good fortune to be in a town like that, where the schools were so, the public schools were so good, and we lived right nestled among them, so I never had to be bussed or driven. I could always walk to school. It was great. My mother had been an English professor, but, but when she got married, she was forced to give that up. You know, in those days, women didn't married women didn't get to keep jobs in places like colleges and high schools and things. She was at a college in Iowa at the time as a professor. Uh, so she became a, what they called a homemaker in those days, raised four kids. My father was a scientist and engineer, and he uh, really had a huge influence on me, my decision to go in that direction. He, uh, well, he had big, they both had a big influence in many ways, uh, but in terms of my career, his interest in very broadly speaking in science and engineering, not a specialist but a kind of a broad generalist, made what he did fascinating. I worked for him when I was a kid in his business, and that really kind of got me hooked. That and some other experiences as a child. So, and I think what happens to you outside of school is really important in shaping one, your aspirations. From the time I was three years old until I went to college, I was dead set on being a musician. 
And in fact, I was already a professional musician from the age of 15. I was working as, I was in the union, I was working as a musician. So I went to college fully intending to major in music. But something wonderful happened. I, as I mentioned already, I already liked science, thanks to my dad. And, and uh, I got to college in my freshman year while taking the beginning music courses. I took a general education science course with the intention of getting rid of the requirement to do a gen ed science course. And it was phenomenal and it changed everything in my plans. From that moment on I decided I was going to do science. And it was a course that was offered for the first time in my freshman year, which was in 1960. And uh, it was taught by a guy who was already very eminent. In fact, he was a member of the Academy and he was later a Nobel Prize winner. But at the time when I took this course, he was just very eminent as a scientist. He hadn't won a Nobel Prize yet. Uh, and he, his name was George Wald. He had done very important stuff on visual, visual transduction, how the, eyes, how the eye works. And uh, he, he did something that I realize now is very unusual for a very eminent senior person to devote himself to developing solo, a year-long freshman undergraduate general education course. He spent a year developing it, and then he taught it for the first time the year I took it. And it was an amazing concept, because there, I, there wasn't anything else like it in the country. In fact, he made the front cover of Time as one of the great teachers in America for having developed this course. It was called Life. That was just the name of the course. And as I say, it was designed to be a gen ed course, so poets and economists and stuff took it. And uh, what made it so special is that it was unlike any biology course in the country or in the world at the time, because for the first half of the year, until January, we didn't touch a living thing. There was nothing about life, even though the course was called Life. It was, we started with the Big Bang and the, the nature of atoms and the chemical bond and the elementary particles in the universe. And, I mean, it was everything. So I had physics and chemistry and cosmology and you name it. All of that setting the stage for the origin and evolution of life. So we got to January, came back from the holidays, and he devoted one lecture to what was usually about half of a, of a biology course that is phylogeny, you know, the, the, the organization of living things into kingdoms and phyla and all that. He did that one lecture and then breezed right by and we went into mechanistic stuff, which was what really hooked me. So things like metabolism and neurobiology, which was a new field, that word didn't even exist. But we learned about what is now called neurobiology, genetics, development, things like that. So he had modules in the second half of the course that were focusing in on important phenomena and the mechanisms underlying them. Well, no biology course was taught like that in those days. It was always systematics, you know, the phylogeny and learning about the difference between one kind of mammal and another and doing dissections and all that stuff. We didn't do any of that. We, we did something really different, and that was what was hooking me. And I'll tell you, it was so amazing. That course... Um, that was at Harvard. It's called, it was called Natural Sciences 5, Natsi 5. He had over 300 students in that first year of that class, and I would guess that about half of them changed their majors as a result of it. And there are several people I now realize who were in that course who went on to be quite, quite distinguished in life sciences one way or another. So he was like a Pied Piper. He I don't know if it was his intention, I don't think it was, but he managed to seduce a lot of people to rethink their life plans. And that, that's the mark of quite a charismatic teacher, I think. So what happened, I mean, it sounds like an amazing course, but 
what happened within you? Like, what do you think appealed to you so much and really caused you to go on this other path? I think the main thing, if I remember accurately, and I'm not synthesizing something now, which people do, you know, but if I remember right, I think it was that I had no idea that biology could be like that. Because what I had in high school in biology and what everybody talked about it, what was in the catalog of the college at the time, was the old-fashioned traditional stuff. You know, you took a course on reptiles and you took a course on mammals and, you know, there would be an embryology course, but it was all descriptive. And here was a course which already for a freshman who had no prerequisites was a, a course that focused on mechanism and underlying phenomena, scientific phenomena, not just descriptive stuff. So it was very analytical, it was very mechanistic, very integrated. We now talk about something, the notion of integrative science, which is bringing chemistry and physics and math and biology and everything together. I tell my students that Mother Nature doesn't know about chemistry and physics and math. It's all one glorious thing to Mother Nature. But we created these guilds in the Middle Ages as a way of sort of organizing teaching. And we've developed them further now because that's a good way to organize people's paychecks and stuff. But it doesn't make any kind of intellectual sense. So he was teaching in a way that just ignored those boundaries. And I didn't know that was possible. I'd never been exposed to anything like that. I think it was just that it was an epiphany to, to see a different way of looking at living things. And it made a lot of sense at the time. So once you had this epiphany, um was it a struggle? Did you feel like you had to choose between music and... It's a funny thing. I, I didn't know about Yogi Berra's quote at that point, but I never felt like it was either or. Because I never stopped doing music. I did stop taking the courses. I wasn't going to do all the theory and everything that I would have had to do as a major. But I had already had a lot of that foundational stuff all through my youth. So I kept doing music very actively all through college and graduate school. And even when I was a full professor in New York, I was still doing it. I was like, you know, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. The sun went down and I went out and worked like a musician, which created a lot of interesting things. People wanted to know what I did during the day, and I didn't ever want to tell them the truth because that would have put a barrier between me and them. So I used to say, oh, I work in a university. <laughs> that was funny because there were other people who did that, doing things like putting books back on the shelf in the library. And somebody once in the pit in the, in the Broadway show said, oh, I, I work in a college too. I put, I'm reshelving books in the library. Is that what you do? And I said, yeah, something like that. So, yeah, I would say that it, it was never either or to me. I was confused for a long time, and the confusion continued until I finished my Ph.D., even while I was a graduate student. I did some things that nobody knew about, and in fact, I've hardly ever confessed them. I mean, I played some auditions for major professional appointments as a musician because I wasn't sure that I didn't want to do that. There were two kinds of confusion, so this is a good point to introduce that. One was the persistent feeling that, did I really want to do science first and music second, or did I want to go the other way? And I realized that I couldn't really go music first and science second. There, you can do music as an avocation or as a second career, but you can't do science that way, really. But I, keep, I kept having this feeling that I really loved doing the music. And practically every night when I'd go out and work with the people that I was working with and play and I'd go home feeling great, I th you know, I'd, I'd have this gnawing feeling that I really was I doing the right things. And that persisted all the way through graduate school. 
But then something else happened that introduced confusion. In 1965, I guess, when I was an early student in graduate school, I, I, in those days there was no internet or anything, so I used to go to the library every night, either before supper, before I'd go out and play my horn, or after I'd get back from doing some musical thing. I'd go in there late at night, because the library was open to us all night. And uh, I'd always look at the new journals and then look at the new books. And so one night I went in there, that was a night I didn't have to do anything musical, so I went in there right after dinner. And I, those days I was single, I, you know, I, didn't, I couldn't have lived this crazy lifestyle if I hadn't been single. So I, I went in there and looked at the new bookshelf, and there was a book that caught my eye. It was a little, little format book, only about that thick. And it had a praying mantis on the cover. Now what I haven't told you is that when I was a boy, starting about as early as when I started music, I also loved insects. I, I, my father had a, his business uh, on a bunch of land that was surrounded by wild fields. And I used to love to go out there and spend hours digging around and looking under things and collecting snakes and insects and just reveling in the biology of a few acres of wild urban land. And one of the things I particularly loved was pragmatists. I used to catch them and then keep them as pets and feed them and stuff. They're amazing insects. Well, so here's a book that had pragmatists on the cover, and it's looking right at you. I don't know if you've ever looked at a pragmatist, but that's the only insect that can turn its head the way we can. And it has big eyes that have what's called pseudopupils. So even though they're insect-type compound eyes, Wherever they're looking, the, the, their gaze is directed. There's a little black spot that you can see in each eye. So you, it's just like it's looking right at you. And it is looking right. Well, that's the way the picture was. So it caught my attention. And the title of the book was Nerve Cells and Insect Behavior. Well, wow. So, you know, I had liked the neurobiology stuff that was in George Wald's course. And then I never did anything more with neuroscience until I got to graduate school and read that book. That evening, I sat down with that book, and I read the whole book before I got up out of the chair. That was the closest thing to a thunderous epiphany that I've ever had. I was so riveted by the book that I didn't get up until I read the whole book. And then I put it back on the shelf, and that little voice that carries with you for throughout your life, you know, the little persona inside your head that you talk to, and at least I have a little persona in there. Um, I heard that voice say, that's it. That is what you want to do. So from that point on, I had double confusion. So the last three years of my graduate work, I was still wrestling with the idea, well, do I want to do music first or do I want to do science? But now I've been spending years becoming a biochemist, and now I think, well, what I really want to do is this other thing. When I got my PhD in bioorganic chemistry, I went to do a postdoc in neurobiology in the first Department of Neurobiology in the world. It was created in 1966 at Harvard Medical School, and the person who started it was Stephen Kuffler, another one who was in the National Academy. I had figured out by reading the literature at the time that that would be a great place to be a postdoc and sort of transition from one field into another. It turns out a lot of other people were doing that then. It was a phenomenal time to be going into what was now called neurobiology because there was no tradition of neurobiology. I don't know if you know, but up to that point, what happened is that there was neuroanatomy in anatomy departments, and there was neuropharmacology in pharmacology departments, there was neurophysiology in physiology departments, and nobody talked to each other. 
And Kuffler's, one of his great contributions was to realize that that's crazy. Why don't we bring those people together and have them talk to each other? And he was very good at picking the right people. So he put together this group at Harvard Medical School that became the, Department of Neuro, the first Department of Neurobiology. It was the most important breeding ground for people who went on to be leaders in neuroscience at that time. I had a kind of postdoc experience that people don't have nowadays. None of them, well, 80% had not had neuroscience as their previous training. There were people who came from genetics and cell biology and biochemistry and so forth and came there to learn to be neurobiologists. So the postdocs organized, we, we organized ourselves informally into a sort of a study group where we read papers and sat there at night and discussed them and stuff. I never see postdocs doing that now, but we had to teach ourselves this new field, and everybody was an expert at something. You know, I was the go-to guy for certain kinds of biochemistry, and there was a geneticist who was, you know, equally important for understanding genetic things and so on. So I like to tell people that I took the worst job offer I got, and it was one of the best decisions I ever made. Uh, one place offered me an associate professorship out of a postdoc you know, jumping over the, the normal starting level and promised me to get permanent tenure, you know, after a couple of years. It was, it was a very disproportionate, sort of strange, uh, unusual kind of offer. Anyway, so Steve looked at me in a sort of quizzical way and he said, well, what's the problem? Do you want to go there? And I said, well, I don't really want to, but how can I turn that down? He said, oh, that's easy, tell him you're not that good. <laughs> And you know, I spent the rest of my life wondering, what did he mean by that? While I was wrestling with this over the week or two after my trip, he came to me and he said, would you like to stay here? Now, they didn't advertise a job. They never said anything about it. And I think they just, the faculty had just decided, well, why don't we add some junior faculty? That casually, Ooh, you want to stay here? So I said, well, that, that was sure work for me. So I said, sure. And, well, they had a faculty meeting, and they just decided. They, the two of us, they, they had just appointed us. We had been postdocs there, and they just appointed us to the faculty. So I started my independent career in a job I didn't have to apply for, and I didn't have to interview for or anything. From the time I started my own lab, I worked on insects. So there's a story there how I got actually started to realize that, that intention, you know. I, I had a, an image in my mind of what I wanted. I wanted an insect model system that would let me study the nervous system in, in ways that would require it to be a big insect and easy to rear in the laboratory. And so I went across the river from the medical school to, to Cambridge to a friend of mine who was one of the youngest people ever elected to the National Academy, a wonderful guy named Fotis Kafatos, who was an insect guy. And I went to photos, I described what I want. I said, I want a big insect. Because I wasn't trained in entomology. I don't really know in a systematic way insect biology. just know what I've learned in passing. So I described what I wanted. Big insect, easy to rear in the lab. And I wanted it to be what's called a holometabolous insect. That's one that goes through complete metamorphosis. So, you know, from a caterpillar or a larva to a pupa to an adult. And the reason I wanted that is because I wanted to study development of the nervous system. And that, I thought, would be a great model. 
Well, as I was describing what I wanted, he got this funny little grin on his face, and he, he just gestured to me to come with him. So I went into the lab, and he reached into an incubator, and he pulled out a plastic dish that had a caterpillar that was the size of a large cigar, humongous thing, and he handed it to me. <laughs> and, I, and he said, well, that's the larva, the animal that you should, you should look at. And I'm working on that animal to this day. So I took him back to my new little developing lab that had almost nothing in it and looked at this thing under the microscope and looked at its nervous system and I just went nuts. I knew right away this is beautiful. And I've been working on that animal every day since then. So it's now 42 years. It's been, a, it's been really good. As Sammy Sosa said, he said baseball's been very, very good to me. You know, he's one of the great baseball players in the history of baseball. Well, Manduka Sexta, that's my insects, it's been very, very good to me. <laughs> if you've ever tried to, if you've ever lived someplace where you've tried to raise tomatoes and you find a great big green caterpillar eating your tomato plants, that's, this, that's that animal. It's called the tobacco hornworm, but it actually prefers tomatoes over tobacco. It's specialized to plants of one family of plants, and that's the one that includes tobacco, tomato, potato, and so forth. And they're huge and voracious. They can defoliate a whole plant, one of these caterpillars. So we started working on that. And then they become moths. And yeah, they, so, they, so they, the caterpillar grows up to be this huge thing the size of a big cigar, and then it, then it molts to a pupa, which is you know something about, well, three or four inches long, uh, that molts underground, and that thing uh, it, it doesn't have much behavior, very limited behavior. It's, it's basically a transition state between the larva and the adult moth. And then when it emerges from that pupa, three weeks or so after the pupa formed, is the moth, this beautiful big moth that looks like a, it has a wingspan, makes it look like it's a small hummingbird. It's a pretty big moth. And big was important to me because I wanted a big nervous system to be able to do the manipulations that I imagined wanting to do. And that was a good choice because we've been able to do things that you can't do in, in other smaller insects. And so what are some things that you've learned from this moth? Okay, uh, the first years, the goal was to study development. The nice thing about metamorphosis, this, this thing going from an embryo to a caterpillar and then watching the caterpillar grow up and then a pupa form and then an adult emerge, is that the development is not a continuous, smooth process. It's a process that's sort of punctuated. So the nervous system and many other structures develop to a certain point in the embryo and in the larva. Meanwhile, much of what will become the adult's nervous system and other structures is based on cells that are sort of set aside and just sit there. They may multiply, but they don't develop. Pools of cells, clusters of cells that are destined to become things like the legs, the genitalia, the mouth parts, the big eyes, the compound eyes, the antennae, all these different structures uh, in the adult animal that, that, that sit there all the way through larval life and, and proliferate but don't differentiate. They don't form those structures until the, the adult forms during the pupil stage. And all that's controlled by hormones which by now we know a lot about the hormones that control. So having hormonal control and punctuated development 
is is actually a beautiful playground to learn some things about how complex nervous systems develop. And to give you an example, I chose very early to work on the olfactory system, and that wasn't because at the time I was interested in olfaction. It was because the antenna, which is the nose of a moth, is an appendage, and the sensory cells that are responsible for detecting odors are out in that appendage, and they send their projections, their axons, into the head to innervate a specific target region in the brain that's the olfactory center in the brain. And so that you've got all the receptor cells in an appendage and the target is in the head. You can manipulate those two populations of cells independently. So one of the most interesting things we did during that phase of my career while I was still at Harvard and while we were focusing just on development was to manipulate the, the the, those two population cells, the brain cells that are developing in the olfactory center and the receptor cells that are developing in the antenna, just because they're in different structures, you can handle them separately. So we discovered that, first of all, the system is sexually dimorphic. So males have a, quite a different olfactory system than females, and females are quite different from males. So we knew at the time what the male-specific structures were doing. They're, they're responsible for detecting the sex pheromone of the animal. This is the sex attractant that a female releases to attract a mating partner. And th that, that's a big part of what male olfactory system does, so it's really prominent. And they have special structures in their brain and, that are unique to male brains. It's in the olfactory center of the brain. They are the targets of the specialized cells on the antenna that detect the pheromone. We demonstrated that, and then we demonstrated that those special structures in the brain develop when a brain of either a male or a female is innervated by the male-specific receptor cells. So we did that by transplanting antennae. We could, as I said, you can manipulate the system. So you could, you could have a male moth develop with a female antenna on it, or a female moth develop with a male antenna on it. And whichever antenna develops on the moth ends up typical of the sex of the animal that donated the antenna, and yet it innervates the brain. So you, you picture that, the male antenna innervating a female brain. Now we look at the female brain and we see those male-specific structures have developed. And we showed that the, the transplanted male antenna detects the pheromone perfectly well, whereas a normal female antenna doesn't. And those structures that have been induced in the female's brain are receiving the male-specific input, something that would never happen in a female's brain. So what this showed was something very interesting about the power, the, the power of the influence of innervation from the periphery on development of the central nervous system. It's not the only example that one can come up with, but it's a very dramatic one. And we spent a lot of time studying that and, and trying to understand how the, the influence of the ingrowing cells it plays out to make structures develop in a... In a a brain that wouldn't ordinarily be there and have them function properly. Well, then the coolest thing about this was that after we had studied all the sort of cellular aspects of development, we, we said, well, what do they do behaviorally? You have to realize that the female ordinarily doesn't detect her own pheromone. She, she can't smell it. She doesn't respond to it. Only the male detects it and responds to it. But now we take one of these females. We call it a genandromorph. That just means it's got a, sort of a mix of male and female tissues. A surgical genandromorph that's a female moth with one male antenna, and you now test it in a behavioral situation with pheromone, she responds to the pheromone just the way a male would. 
So having just the, the nose basically grafted onto and developing on a host is enough to turn the animal's behavior into that of the other sex. This was pretty amazing to us. So we pursued that quite a lot and came to the point where we understood quite well, I think, how that could be, how, how just having the right sensory inputs could change not only the targets, but the whole behavior of the animal. Uh, the most recent thing we've been working on is an aspect of olfactory coding. Coding means how does the information in, in a scent get represented in neural activity in the central nervous system? What does that mean to, to encode it in neural activity? Over the years, we learned a lot about how concentration and chemical identity and stuff like that is encoded. That was pretty straightforward. But in recent years, we got really interested in how mixtures of odor molecules, which is the nature of most scents. I mean, think about perfumes. There's many components in a perfume or the scent of a flower. How does a scent that the, the animal, whether it's a human or an insect, recognizes as unique, as meaningful to the animal. How is that coded? How is it coded not just as a bunch of different stimuli that make up the scent, but as an object in its own right, that mixture being a meaningful, significant object? And what we discovered is that the neurons that are the outputs from that primary olfactory center in the brain that I've been mentioning, those neurons that carry information from the initial processing center to higher order centers in the brain, uh, when, when, the, when they're receiving information about components in a mixture that's behaviorally significant, those cells start to fire their action potentials simultaneously, coincident firing. So it turns out that a coding mechanism for salience or behavioral significance, meaningfulness of a mixture, as opposed to just some random mixture, is, is, a, is a matter of rendering firing of cells coincident. I, I've been stressing that this is a, a kind of research that's using a model to learn about general principles. And that has been my initial and long-sustained motivation. But there's a second reason that I really have stayed with insect olfaction. And that is that, that it's arguably one of the most important things you could possibly study for human health. And that's because all of the vector-borne diseases, from malaria to dengue to West Nile virus, on and on, vector-borne, meaning born by blood-sucking arthropods, together, if you add them all up, they're by far the biggest health problem of humans in the world. And uh, all of those vectors, whether they're ticks or fleas or mosquitoes or kissing bugs, you know, any, any one of those kinds of creatures, they find their hosts and select their hosts based on olfaction. So we, the, the problem that we have with human health or livestock health owing to those vector-borne diseases boils down to a problem of the vector finding the host on the basis of scent. The best example of that is falciparum malaria, the, the number one infectious disease of humans. That's the kind of malaria you find in tropical Africa and in the Indian subcontinent. Fortunately, not in this country. Uh, there's a one species of mosquito that goes only to humans, and that makes it a diabolically perfect vector for malaria. That's why malaria is such a huge problem for humans. And that animal uses olfaction to find humans, even in the midst of lots of livestock, 
which have a lot more blood than the humans do, and it would be perfectly okay. But those mosquitoes are specialized to humans. So I've realized long after choosing to work on this problem area that it's really important in a way that I hadn't anticipated. So a lot of what we've done has actually helped or inspired work on mosquito olfaction and other vector uh, host interaction problems. And that makes me very happy. It means that Manduka turned out to be not just a model for understanding human olfaction, which was the initial motivation, but it's become a kind of model mosquito to teach us about olfaction in insects, which is important in its own right. What advice would you give to a young person interested in a career in science? Well, I know how I answer that question, and I hope it's not wrong in today's world. I'm not confident that it's right, but what I would say is you have to choose something you really love to do. That's much more important than than picking something that's cool or sexy or trendy or being motivated by anything like that. I think what's most important is that you just have to find something that you can't not do. And I was really lucky that in a pathway that, as you've heard, was a little torturous, I did wind up with something that I couldn't not do. And I think that's been really important. It sustains one through lots of tribulations. It's not easy to get a job and keep it and keep funded and get papers accepted by good journals. It's, it's a never-ending struggle for most of us. It helps greatly if your motivation isn't just to get things done and get famous, but your motivation is that you just love it and you want to do it. You can't wait to go back the next day. So that's the best advice I can give. And I can't tell people how to find that, except that they have to try things. My biggest frustration as a faculty member is that it's so hard, especially today, more than in the past, to get young people who come to college to try things that aren't familiar to them. Just to go into situations that they don't know what's there. To try music, to try food, to try a subject, to read something that they don't already know about and aren't already comfortable with. I know that sounds like fuddy-duddy, old guy talk, but it, I mean, I, I know it's true. There is less of a willingness to just try the strange, the unknown. And if I hadn't fortuitously been doing that, I wouldn't ever have found what I discovered I loved. Since 1863, the nation's top scientists have been honored with membership in the National Academy of Sciences. Today, there are more than 2,500 in the NAS membership, of whom approximately 200 have won Nobel Prizes. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of Interviews and invite you to join us again for another inspiring conversation.